Hello and welcome back to Media Voices. We take a look, normally, at all the news and views in the media world, but this season we're giving it across to people who are making a really big splash with some big noises. So, Peter, who is the next in the Media Voices Big Noises series? This was a tree. I got to interview Jacob Donnelly. We read Jacob's newsletter, a media operator, regularly. Um, and it was just so nice to be able to meet him in person. He was in Kashkai's, I was in Kashkai's, and it was just so nice to be able to do this face to face. And yeah, it was brilliant. Nice. So, so just finished um, doing a little bit of the mastering on the actual audio of it. And there's so much in there that we could talk about. I, I you know, I flagged a couple before we started recording. The first is that he says, Vice will not be the last Vice, and he's talking there specifically about chasing scale and taking VC funding in pursuit of that scale, which is just hiding to nothing. We kind of riffed on on what uh, Neil had said in our first episode about VCs being culpable. I don't think Jacob thought they were necessarily culpable. He blames front and centre. He blames the media. His you know his his focus is media operators, and he blames mm-hmm. media operators. One of the things he did say was that um, the finance end of the market uh, can be dumb, his words, uh, and also can have short memories. <laughs> oh, uh, so, never, never a true word spoken. So that idea that, um, you know, we're done and dusted on plays like Vice or, or you know, BuzzFeed's situation mm. with BuzzFeed News. Uh, he definitely doesn't think we've seen the last of that madness. There was, uh, speaking of that, there's a part towards the end that I really, really liked where he said, um, actually doing this right, building out a sustainable media business model is not difficult. It's not rocket science. It just takes a lot of work. And part of that work does seem to be fending off the desire to go all in on scale or to take big amounts of money because you think it will let you do stuff but ultimately it just ends up feeding this beast which is you know always going to be hungry that's where he flipped what neil said he said that Mm -hmm. in that sense media people are are, are culpable because vcs or the finance guys are saying oh yeah here's all this money you all you have to do is get me a hundred million users and and media is saying oh yeah no worries give us the money (laughs) And then when you haven't got 100 million users, they're right back on that hamster wheel trying to find enough money to grow their audience and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. The the, the solution he gave at that point, which I thought was really interesting, he because obviously he works not just as a media operator, but he works for Morning Brew as well. Yeah, yeah. Is, is he was saying... Absolutely. You can hit, you can set your targets for audiences, but once you've reached that and you feel like that's the sustainable level you've got and you can monetize them and speak to them really, really well, that's the time to think about not expanding that, but to launch a new vertical. I mean, that big thing when he was speaking at the conference was about niches and it was so nice to hear an American (laughs) say niche. Did he say niche or niche? He did. No, he said niche. Wow. Which means we can't do the niches and riches and niches niches. anymore, but, um, yeah, he said niche, which was God love him for that. <laughs> yeah, man, that was his thing. It was in Morning Brew is the absolute playbook for that. You know, they've got Morning Brew for HR and Morning Brew for everything you can imagine. And it has mm. his role at Morning Brew is in the B2B space. So I guess in that sense, his palette is, uh, is pretty infinite. But then he's also talking about, which I thought was fascinating because it's exactly the media voices ethos as well is that if he loses out on a commercial partnership or something down the line because of something he said, then then that's not somebody he would want to work with anyway. Well, I think that's exactly why we wanted to talk to him for this season of 
big noises. It's, mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know what you call it. Do you call it integrity or do you just do you call it dumb? <laughs> I don't know. But it's that idea of not just chasing the money. Mm-hmm. And that point, I think, of not rocking the boat, he's right. It's it's not special to, to media analysis or to whatever. But the idea that you actually call things as you see them, I think, was uh, very refreshing. And again, it's back to that idea. He's, he says that a couple of times. This is not rocket science. This is just focusing on the fundamentals. Uh, it's about implementation and execution. It's not easy, but it's not rocket science. I mean, I mean it was weird. I, I had four or five different conversations at, uh, at the FIP Congress that ended that ended with the, the phrase, common sense is strangely <laughs> uncommon. Uh, and I think that's so true, especially when it comes to money. We spent a lot of time poking holes in all this, but the other thing I asked him was who's doing it right? Uh, and he had some great examples. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the most interesting one, given all the AI type was that he talked about Rafa Ali's Skift. Mm. Um, and they've got Skift AI, which has basically been used to train the language models just on Skift content. And he said he's used that, you know, as a test and found it really, really good, really useful and interesting. So that I think that, uh, it, it, that idea... Well, again, it comes back to the niche idea. So niche AI. Oh, there's yeah. a report. Niche AI. <laughs> niche AI. Right, hang on. Oh, I'm making a note of that and I'm cutting this out of the episode. Nobody else can have that. Uh, and that's exactly the point with, with the Skift AI. And actually some of the other, the practical AI report that I did. Remember that? Remember everyone should go and have a look at that. <laughs> Get it on our website, Voices.media. Voices. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the same thing. It was using it as a tool, not being used by it like a tool. Hey! Where does that specially fit? Oh, hang on, hang on. Yeah, yeah give me a sec. <laughs> <laughs> See, the problem is that the problem is that now we found that button. <laughs> it's never not going to be used again. But before we get into the interview with Jacob, we do want to take a moment, pay the bills, and say thanks to Glide Publishing Platform for their support, not just this episode, but for the entire series of Big Noises. So services like Glide do all the content management for publishers of all sizes. So you can just get on with running titles, sites being the success that you deserve to be. No need to get roped into building any of the back-end tech. Uh, speaking of using your resources appropriately, you just use these cloud services and away you go. And for anybody who's used a CMS or tried to use a CMS or tried worse, tried to use a CMS, which has been iterated and built upon for about a decade at this point until nothing works quite as it should and everything's a bodge, it's a bit of a dream. So if you want to know more, you can go and have a look at gpp.io, check them out, and thanks again to them for the support this episode. And also, Peter, I think uh, they bought you a couple of drinks. Yeah, God love <laughs> Anyone that ever goes to Kashkai, you need to go to the Crow Bar, I think it's called. It's a bit name. hazy around that one, to be honest. <laughs> but, um, yeah, nice. Good one. Nice. <laughs> well, what did you begin by asking Jacob then? Um, well, I started by asking him how he got into this mad, crazy game of media operations. Got my start working at an industrial directory right out of college. Um, it's how I learned about B2B. It's how I learned about niche audiences and kind of 
played around there for a number of years, first in the SEO world, then I moved over into the ad product side of things and worked on launching new products and things like that. But while I was there, I was also a freelance writer for a number of crypto publications. Uh, I've always liked doing two things at once, which will come up, I'm sure, as we talk about AMO. Uh, and so while I was there, I was writing for a company called Coindesk. Um, and about a year after writing for them, uh, they reached out and asked if I wanted to join the team full-time as their director of marketing. Uh, so I joined Coindesk as director of marketing, focused primarily on their events product. Uh, and then two weeks afterwards, they found out I had experience with ad products. And they said, cool, now you're in charge of the ad business. Uh, when there's eight people on a team, you tend to have multiple jobs. Uh, so I spent four years at Coindesk doing any number of things, right? I did marketing still, did advertising operations, ad sales, new product development, uh, a real real place to test my, you know, uh, theses and my, uh, my experiences in media and to try like, all right, this works, this doesn't work and all that. It was, a, it was a fun place to spend four years. Uh, and it was a wild time in crypto. Um, so in 2019, I launched a media operator, uh, where I started writing about media and the business of media and how I think you should build media businesses and all of these various things. And it was there that I, uh, the founders of Morning Brew signed up. They were subscribers. We started talking just about media in general. Uh, and then finally, in um, in September 2020, they asked if I'd want to join Morning Brew full-time to build out their B2B business. So my entire in, my entire you know career had been spent in business media, but much more specifically niche business media. So you know, they they had retail brew and they had marketing brew and they had uh, emerging tech brew. And they're like, we think there's a play here to really build out this B2B business, but we need someone to, to, to take it. So, you know, I joined November 2020 uh, and that's what I've been doing so far. And what is it now? It's June. So it's been it'll be three years in November. And I guess it's been an interesting three years. As well. It's been a wild three years. It's been a wild three years. It's been great. We've grown like crazy. Our, our, our B2B business, like I said on stage, we're up four times in revenue in, in those two and a half years. So uh, very, very pleased with where we're going. So some people, when the the founders of Morning Brew signed up for the newsletter and then eventually offered them a job, would say, okay, I'm done. Media operator, thanks very much. Uh -huh. You got me settled. I'll, I'll see you when I next need a job. Yeah. But you didn't do that, right? You kept going. Why did you keep going with the media operator? Um, for for three reasons. One, I'm a firm believer in in in, in diversification of everything, right? So sustainable media companies are diversified. You know, we're told our investments should be diversified, and I believe income should be diversified, right? Uh, you know, I've got a great job, but they could one day decide they don't want me to work there anymore, and you know, uh, that's that would be their prerogative. So I've always believed in in that. So that's one reason. Two, it makes me better at my job, right? I process my thoughts best in writing, and so. I oftentimes will write about things I'm thinking about for Morning Brew in AMO, right? So when we were starting to plan our events, I put a number of pieces out about different models for events because I was thinking through that, right? And I don't, I don't have all the right answers, but it's just my way of processing my thoughts. And I think it makes me a better executive because I am willing to put my thoughts out there and people know what I'm thinking about. Uh, and the third reason is, you know, it gives me the opportunity to meet other professionals in the space. I'm not a natural networker, right? I'm not, I don't, I don't love going up to people and introducing myself. I've just never been good at it. Um, but when, when people have read me and they know who I am, it, it makes it easier for the conversation. It's almost, I, I've already done the icebreaker. Uh, and so that's why I do it. And, you know, it's turned into a thriving business. So I, I can't exactly be upset about that. So, I mean, I've read a media operator almost since you started. And one of the things that I take from it is 
<laughs> I, don't know, I don't know the best way to put this, but you say exactly what you're thinking. We all work in businesses where we have to not say exactly what we're thinking. But with your own thing, I guess you can. Is that part of it? That's part of it. I, I also just don't know how to not say what I'm thinking. Uh, I've always said that I could never work at a big company because I'd get I, one of two things would happen. I would either get uh, pissed off about all the politics and quit or more likely I'd get fired because I said something stupid. Um, I just I've never been good at 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 hiding what I'm thinking. Um, and so, yeah, with AMO, you know, I've got people who are paying me to read this newsletter. They don't they don't want me to beat around the bush. They want me to tell them what I think. They want what I think, which baffles me sometimes that people want to know what I think. But sure, that's what they want. And so it does me no it does me no favors to to beat around the bush. And I think also, you know, part of what it is is ultimately like I'm, I I find that founders are a little bit more willing to say what they think versus like super trained executives, right? And so like, you know, <laughs> At Morning Brew, like I'm not, I'm not the founder there, but like I work for the founder, you know, and I, his conversations both publicly on Twitter and all that, like he's, he's very forthcoming with what he's thinking. And then same with me for AMO, like I'm the founder of that business. It's, I just feel like there's something about that. And so I, there's no value in me hiding my thoughts. You know, I certainly piss people off and I'm sure it'll come back to bite me one day. I'll go to raise money for some project in the future and I'll have pissed off somebody. But you know what? If that's the case, I didn't want that person to be an investor anyway. Right. I need to be able to say what is the most important information for my audience, even if it hurts somebody, like if not hurt somebody feel I'm not gonna be mean, but even if it pisses somebody off because it affects theirs, if they're doing something that I think is wrong. It's my job to say so. Do you think there's too much elsewhere in media that is a little bit like, let's not rock the boat? Um, I don't know if it's so much. I think, look, I think every industry is let's not rock the boat, right? You read, you read most reported stories, like you're getting executives saying things that they don't, they don't they, that, that's like PR'd, right? Everything has been so manicured by a PR team that it's, 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 it's not helpful. Uh, I think that's part of the reason that I've, you know, I've done so well with AMO and part of the reason like the name itself, a media operator is like, people know that my day job is I'm, I'm an executive at Morning Brew, right? They know that. And so when I write, they know that I have an operator's perspective on things. Whereas, you know, most, most people when they're talking, they're doing it, you know, when they, when they talk to reporters, they're like, they're doing it through a position of like, let's just say enough, but not say the whole thing. And that's not helpful, you know? So I, I don't know if it's a fear of rocking the boat or if it's just, I don't know. Would you say what you do is closer to solutions journalism rather than analysis? Um, it's a little bit of both, right? So I, I certainly analyze like when, when, when there's M&A going on and all that, I'll, I'll certainly analyze it and offer my perspective on whether I think it's good or bad or how they might have gotten to the point they got to and how much they sold for when the number's not available. So I certainly do that analysis. But then I also, there are a lot of tactics that media companies should take to really have sustainable businesses. And I write about those, you know, like uh, I remember a few years ago, I wrote a piece about the two pages that every publisher should have. And I thought it was a really straightforward piece, but like I got like seven emails from people saying like this is really helpful. Like I hadn't thought about this. And I, and numerous times when I'll write something, I'll get a reply from someone going, I know I should have been doing this for the past couple of years. I haven't like good reminder. And so, you know, yeah, I'm able to I'm able to talk about things that um, most other people in media are not because I actually do it in my job. And I think that offers a perspective. So you write about stuff that you're doing 
does that ever give you a problem in terms of conflict? Like, you know, you're dealing with stuff that is is kind of proprietary to Morning Brew. Uh, I mean, I don't write about specific things like at Morning Brew, right? So I don't I don't talk about our our revenue numbers in, in the newsletter. I don't talk about you know if we how much we're spending on paid acquisition. I I won't reveal like numbers, but I also don't think there's anything proprietary in media, right? Like media is an, is, is, is an operating business, right? It's all about, it's about how well you execute. There's no secret sauce. Like, yeah, we have a great voice. There's no secret sauce to a media business. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, all we're doing is creating great content for a specific audience and monetizing it. And so I don't really think that there's any real risk there. I just, I just don't, right? Because nothing we're doing, and it's a, it's a weird thing to say, but we're not, we're not, we didn't invent newsletters. We didn't invent the written word. We didn't invent pithiness, right? We didn't invent any of that. We just are doing it better than the vast majority of other people. And I think that that is, it, it's all about how you execute. And so media is an execution game. So I'm not really too concerned about that. So from that, that kind of angle, Everyone that runs a media business has the potential mm-hmm. to be a success, right? If everyone who runs a media business who can clearly tell you who their audience is, who clearly creates content for that audience and clearly monetizes that audience in the best way for that audience can be successful. I mean, we know audience is important. Of yep. course we do. Two questions for you. Why is it so important? Maybe more importantly, why do people forget that it's so important? So why is it so important? Audience is your customer. Audience is the person who's consuming your content. And if you're a subscription business, is the one who is literally paying for the content. But even as an ad business, is the one that the advertisers want to get in front of. So yes, the advertiser is the one giving you the money. But they won't give you the money if the who on the other side of that is not interested. Right? So if if you know I, I if they are if they're an HR software provider, but all of my readers work in manufacturing, they don't care, right? Except for the one HR manufacturing person there, they care, but everyone else, they don't. And so you have to start every conversation with the who and really be clear about who the audience is so that you know you can get everything else right. And I think the reason that like media forgot about that is because you know, the internet sort of makes the who a little bit harder to understand. At least it did for a while. It's getting easier again because of, you know, certain technologies. But all we cared about was how many, right? When when scale became possible, right? Or the perceived, the, the idea that there was scale, all we cared about was how many people are seeing this, right? Page views became a, a metric, right? Even unique visitors became the metric versus who is the unique visitor, and so I think that's really where media companies started to fail is they stopped caring about who was reading their content and they started caring about how many were reading their content or consuming their content. And you certainly, you have to care about how many, of course, if you only have, if you're, if you're an HR company, you know, media company and you've only got two HR professionals reading you, you obviously have a problem. Uh, but I'd rather have a thousand HR professionals reading me than a hundred thousand non-HR professionals reading me because an advertiser will care about the thousand more than the hundred thousand. So that's the, that's the real problem. So do you think that's the problem behind the kind of failures? We've talked about BuzzFeed News, we've talked about Vice, a couple of things you talked about earlier, but do you think fundamentally that 
lack of audience focus is a problem for them? Uh, yeah, so it was a couple of things. One, they told you, what they would say is that they were trying to reach everybody. They, they might say, oh, we're trying to reach millennials, or we're trying to like reach, but you really think about it, they're trying to reach everybody uh, with like general content. Well, everyone's trying to reach everybody with general content, right? BuzzFeed News was, Vice was, New York Times was, Washington Post was, every local paper that was still trying to do scale was, like everyone was trying to chase everybody with general content. And so that was the first problem is that it was undifferentiated. You know, the only, there's only so many stories you need to tell about the same thing before like the audience just doesn't care anymore. So that's one thing. And the second thing, especially with Buzzfeed and Vice, their cost structure and their cap table just got out of whack, right? It was just, they, they became way too expensive to operate. They raised too much money. And so they, they lost sight of who they were serving, right? They stopped serving their reader and they started serving whatever investors wanted to see to get more money. Uh, and that's obviously a big problem. And, you know, it was a race to the bottom for the type of advertising they could sell because they, they had no differentiation. So when there's no differentiation, the value of the ad is, use, is, is very low. And so they just, they couldn't get their businesses profitable. And that's ultimately what destroyed them. You were quite strident, uh, that's maybe not the right word, but you're certainly strong in coming out and saying, look, this wasn't, a, this wasn't equity's fault. This was Vice's fault. You can't blame an investor for your own business's failure. Investors, what all an investor does is give you capital to execute, but you're the one executing, right? AMO, I'm the operator, right? If you come to me and say, you know what, Jacob, I want to give you a million dollars, right, to grow AMO. I could take it, right? I'm happy to take a million dollars, but it's on me to figure out how to make the business more successful because of that million dollars. I can't blame you for me failing to make my business more successful with a million dollars. And the issue is, you know, with Vice, they executed poorly, right? Yes, TPG and Sixth Street came in and they asked for preferred rights where I think it was like 1.x what they put in. So if they put 400 million in, they had to get 1.x, 1.8x of that out before the, any other investor got paid. Sure, those are all terms. No one told Vice they had to take the money. No one held a gun to their head and said, hey, take this sort of like you have a problem. Like, no, they wanted it because they were addicted to the money. And so, no, the, the, Vice's failure is because of Vice. It's not because of private equity. Now, that does not mean that all private equity and all you know equity investing is is great, right? You certainly have the you know the PE firms that are going out and buying local papers and and stripping them down to you know their to their, their carcass. Yeah, that's bad, right? And and I I it's capitalism and it's it's one of the you know frustrating parts about it. But the reality is is, is that if those were good businesses, that wouldn't be possible. Right. If they were sustainable, profitable businesses, that wouldn't like they wouldn't be doing that. And so it all goes back to great execution. And if you're executing your business well and you're really serving a great audience, private equity, venture capital, angel investing, whatever the money's coming from, it's it should be a tool to help you accomplish your goals of serving a core audience. It shouldn't be anything more than that. You think there's a problem on both sides, though, where investors are these weird metrics that they follow, basically scale-driven metrics, and then the, the publishers, on the other hand, are saying, yeah, we could do that. So both sides are at fault. Well, I think that investors are, are dumb to assume that they can, that, that a media business is going to grow infinite, right? I think that's just dumb, right? And, and I think they've learned their lesson there. Until, you know, as with every cycle, you know, it'll be a few years from now and then they'll forget and then they'll, you know, we'll be back. We'll, we'll be talking. Vice is not the last vice. I can <laughs> promise you that. Right. But uh, no, this, in my mind, a lot of this rests on the operator. 
right? The business owner is the one responsible for executing the plan. And if you genuinely believe that you can build a sustainable business trying to get to a hundred million or a billion people, you're out of your mind. You're absolutely out of your mind. That's not the future of media. And if an investor says, I want to give you a hundred million dollars so you can get to a hundred million people, the response should be no. I don't, I'm not going to get to hundred million people. I'm going to serve these 1 million people or these 10 million people. Right. And that's all I'm going to do for right now until I'm doing that well. And then we can talk about, maybe I launch another vertical, right? So we do at morning brew. We've got, we've got HR brew, IT brew, CFO brew, healthcare brew, marketing brew, retail brew. We've got multiple different brews for specific audiences. But if someone came to us and said, we want you to make HR brew a hundred million dollar a year business, no, you're out of your mind. That's not that's, that's like that's not how the model works. So I certainly blame investors for not understanding the media business, but I put most of the blame on the operator. They're the ones who took the money. Period. So who's the best operators at the moment? Who's the people that you look to and think, yeah, they're doing a good job? Uh who are the best? So you got Endeavor Business Media, a great business kind of acquiring a number of of different publications in the B2B space. Bought a bunch from Informa right before the pandemic. It's like 175 million in revenue, all B2B, all boring ass topics. So that's Chris Farrell from Endeavor Business Media. Then you have uh, Craig, Craig Fuller from Freight Waves, right? Freight Waves is, a, is all about trucking. It's a B2B business. Uh, I remember when I first started talking to him, he was like, yeah, we have this massive TV studio in our office down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I was like, I, I thought to myself, this dude's out of his mind. <laughs> You do not invest in video for B2B media. Proven me wrong. It's great success for him. It was great for him when the pandemic happened, right? Because suddenly he was able to pivot his in-person event to this beautifully produced TV product. Uh, and so that's been going well for him. But he, you know, he's kind of, he's, or I'm, I'm going to say I'm a little like him in that we can't just do one thing. And so he then went to, to Bonnier and bought Flying Magazine from them. And he's completely like that business is he's revolutionized that business. Like revenue is up multiples from when he bought it. Uh, he's starting to move audiences down into like secondhand airplanes. And so he's building a marketplace and he's got a resort that he's building where there's actually going to be a runway you fly in. And because he knows so clearly who his audience is and he's been buying up a variety of different aviation related publications. I'm super fond of what he's doing, both on the B2B side and the consumer side. Rafid Ali at Skift is super interesting, right? Um, obviously, Skift's a great product, but what I'm really, what I, what I, what I've really enjoyed past couple months uh, with 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 Rafid is he's not. Everyone's afraid of AI, right? Everyone's like AI is going to destroy our business, and for look for a lot of these operators who have you know built their businesses on the back of Google search, it might hurt. But if you're building a great brand, you're going to be fine. And he actually took the technology and actually rolled out a product called Ask Skift, which is basically it uses all the stories on Skift's site, plus like SEC filings and all that to he launched a, a, a chat GPT like product on his own site for subscribers. And it's great. Like I, I, you know, I played around with it um, where I asked like, you know, something about business travel and it was able to give me all the numbers I wanted to know about when will business travel get back to where it wants, where it used to be pre-pandemic. It's not going to and all that, but it was a super fascinating tool. And I think that's where like we can use this technology to help us, right? If, 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 if these chat based tools are really the future, then absolutely we should, if we have great content, we should be built, powering them ourselves rather than just waiting for ChatGP to, to, to do it for us. Uh, so I really like what they're doing. Um, who else? 
I mean, you know, I'll talk, I'll talk my own book. I am super fond of, of the Morning Brew like team, right? Like I think that they've done a great job building a good audience that's hyper-engaged um, and then moving those people down funnel to other products. So I'm, I'm very fond of, of the team I, I, I get to work with. I know I'm forgetting and I've talked to a lot of people. And so like, I'm going to get something from someone like, hey, what about me or something? But yeah, there's always someone. There's always someone. But the reality is this. If you know who you're writing for and you're creating great content and you have a profitable, sustainable business, nine times out of 10, I'm fond of what you're doing because that is, that's the formula, right? That's all I care about is if, you know, if you really know who you create great content and you sell it appropriately, you got a great media business. The stuff's not complicated. A lot of work, not complicated. Do you think individual creators in that sense have an advantage because they're closer to what they're, whether it's their audiences or whether it's a subject? Do I think that creators have an advantage? Um, to some extent, yes. Right. Like I am a creator and I'm closer to the media than any of the reporters who talk about media. And so I have a unique perspective. Um, so I think that does help. I think I'm at also a disadvantage though. I think creators, they want to create content. They don't want to run businesses. And I think the reality is, is that you need to do both. Um, and if you don't do both, you're not going to succeed. And so I, I, I think creators are a unique model and I think that there's a place for that. But I also think that the standard hire reporters, you know, and go brand first is will, will work. Right. I, I think that people want great information. Sometimes they want it from a creator and sometimes they just want it wherever they're going to get it. So thank you there to Jacob and thanks once again to Glide Publishing Platform for their support for this episode and the series. As mentioned, if you want to know what life without having to build a CMS looks like, you can check out gpp.io. But Peter, you're obviously not in Kashkai anymore. Nope. So unfortunately. I know, unfortunately. But who have we got coming up next week who I think you did speak to in Kashkai? I did. I spoke to Shirish Kokani. Uh, Shirish looks at news innovation and inclusion. Um, from journalism AI to community journalism to serve an audience that we talk about a lot people who currently don't see any value in journalism and are avoiding the news but until then when we'll be back with that fantastic interview and another quick look at everything that we've taken away from it thank you so much for listening and goodbye goodbye goodbye